this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. Hi. Hi! I'm Kristen. And I'm Bella. And welcome to the FemSil Filmcast. Today we are going to go through the history of sex in Hollywood and the relationship between the porn industry and film industry. Crazy how they started kind of in the same place. Um, so we're <laughs> going to start talking first about um, stag films. Then we're going to talk about the Hayes Code, then the sexploitation movement and the porn wars. And finally, kind of uh, the future of, of sex on film and what the porn industry is now. So it's mostly a general overview, but we might get deeper to the topics in the future. Or if you want, you can just look into it afterwards because we're talking about a ton today. But before that, we're going to do our typical media review. So mm-hmm. Bella, what have you been watching? Um, I literally, right before we were going to record, I was watching The Bear. Um, Everyone's been talking about this Christmas (laughs) episode of the season, and I was like, okay, whatever. But no, it was actually really good. (laughs) Um, But yeah. What's the premise of the show? Um, It's basically about this guy that essentially, like, inherits, inherits this, like, restaurant that his brother started and his brother ended up at this point in like season one he's he's like his brother had passed so that's why he kind of like inherited it um and so the main character Carmi who's played by um I can't think of his name but he's uh he's in fucking he's Lip Gallagher in Shameless and he's so Mm. hot and he was like you know a trained chef and now he's like trying to whip this random ass burger joint in Chicago into shape (laughs) um but yeah it's really good and the second season has been a lot more like uh like the emotional (laughs) conflicts between everybody now and less about like well I don't know there's still like stress (laughs) about like the restaurant and stuff but I've liked it a lot so far that's cool yeah I've heard lots of good things lots of really sexy pictures of the main guy like in a white t-shirt um and like will poulter's in it right the guy from like maze runner and yeah eyebrows yeah eyebrows (laughs) uh i think his eyebrows have have changed over the years i think he finally um got got those addressed right yeah might have gotten them plucked (laughs) maybe Um, i don't know but yeah he's in it for like literally one episode i don't know how twitter was like going off about it and i was like oh shit i didn't know he's in the season but no he was just in one episode Oh dang! It was a good, it was a good uh, cameo. Nice. Um, but what media have you been consuming lately? I've been watching, I guess, more than usual. Uh, I've been watching a little bit of White Lotus, like season one. Ooh. Uh, definitely late to the trend there, but it's interesting. I really wish I was more into TV shows, but it, this one has not quite captured me yet. But movies have been good. I watched Tar finally. And that was awesome. I like had the premise spoiled for me, which I didn't think it was a spoiler. Um, but mm. then I just looked at like how everyone else describes the movie on like when they're giving the logline for it. And I'm like, that is not what this movie's about. Yeah. Um, so I guess I won't spoil it or 
is about sexual assault but like okay and like yeah and that's not a spoil yeah and i didn't think that was a spoil but then like the the log line like online is like a woman and her child like must come together for this event and i'm like that's just not that's totally it's the assault (laughs) yeah it's like they're not coming together it's just like it's it's mostly about lydia lydia tar so um yeah yeah but really well done great movie and also is it it based on a true story i don't think so i actually yeah i thought it was but it's not okay um I mean, they did throw in a Placido Domingo reference, um, who is like this big opera star who got exposed for sexual assault allegations. Oh, shit. His career basically like ended, but he was like a really big name, mm-hmm. um, even in like the L.A. opera scene. So like maybe it's kind of just like taking a little bit from that, but I think it was an original story. Okay. Um, it's a cool movie, though. They have like a really they have really long talking scenes, which I really dig like. They have a pretty extended interview scene, which you don't see a lot of those in movies where, like, I don't know, it's like a talk show, but then, like, they really go in depth and mm. and you kind of just get to to sit with Lydia for uh, quite a long time at the beginning of the movie before things really start to get crazy, so. Go to shit. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. No, yeah, I like when there's, like, extended dialogue. That's why I really like the Before series, because it's just, like, all continuous stream of dialogue i mm. used it like talk show and i thought immediately of the of the scene in joker what, <laughs> me too actually one? even though i haven't even seen joker i literally was thinking about that oh it's um, a it's a moment it's a cultural moment literally oh and i mean okay i guess we should tell tell the audiences this but we did watch raw together <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, oh, I almost forgot about that. Yeah, I lest we forget. My <laughs> we were just having a fun podcast planning session, and we did kind of think that Raw was going to be part of our um, catalog for this season about sex, but there's actually not a lot of sex in that movie, contrary to like our belief. So um, mm-hmm. it is cool. We might do it in like a future coming of age series type of season, but. Yeah. It probably wouldn't be a good fit for this one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot about bodies and the physical yeah. capabilities of them, but <laughs> it wasn't as sexy. It, was. it wasn't erotic. <laughs> no, it was very just like, it was like that movie by Bo Burnham, like eighth grade, but like, <laughs> but like with a lot of cannibalism and it's French. <laughs> Like if Bo Burnham was French, not, I cannot believe you're making that comparison right now. <laughs> That's how I, I feel. Know. Like the main characters are so similarly awkward. Like, oh my god. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do like the director though. She's so silly. We were reading she interviews afterwards. She was like, "Oh yeah, cannibalism is just a part of all of us, really." And I wanted to capture that. And I was like, "Hey, wait, what?" Let's pause on that part Let's first. actually, <laughs> is it all of us or just you? <laughs> yeah, um, we could, let's revisit that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, but she's it's so full on Freud admitting he, <laughs> he uh, wants to fuck his mom. Yeah, he's like, that's literally everyone, right guys? <laughs> that's literally everyone, everybody <laughs> and their mothers. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, uh, she was a trip. 
She also had two people like passed out at this like I want to say the show first showing of the movie and her response to that was like she was, she was upset that like the media the press was making I guess a big deal about it and she was like they they just didn't eat all day like that wasn't my <laughs> fault like, <laughs> like no, they were true. definitely just sick <laughs> I'm like, like yes <laughs> yes queen had nothing to do with your movie <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I kept oh, there was also that one character who we who was like gay but not gay. I don't know. That was a funny, <laughs> a strange plot point in that movie. Just that to was hit like, on real fast. <laughs> that was like straight baiting. Like I don't even know. It was kind of also queer baiting. Yeah, it was, it was just like baiting supposed to be bad. <laughs> It was just baiting. Yeah, but just like their love interest slash roommate is like they establish he's gay like very quickly. At, through like various scenes like like he, they show him like getting a blowjob from a guy yeah. and then he's like i'm a hustler and so it's just like <laughs> okay well okay we believe you and then like, and then they really they really um subvert expectations um yeah he's like the, no the straightest gay ever. man ever yeah. i don't it was hard to tell what what they were trying to do with his character um, he was confusing our was sexualities confusing. yeah because um, he still was hot but yeah okay well i think <laughs> i feel like it's time to speaking of hot and the erotic and eating people <laughs> i feel like we can get into one of the first things we wanted to talk about which was kind of the general history of sex in hollywood so the first like on-screen quote-unquote like sexual content in Hollywood was this movie called The Kiss and it was literally just first on-screen kiss but also the first time there was any sort of like suggestive content being like you know distributed in in theaters and it's really upset a lot of people already but it already inspired like other movies to also do more on-screen kissing this is about this is like early early 1900s this was 1896 when the kiss came out um yeah how would you feel if you had never seen two people kiss before and then just (laughs) you know you're chilling at the movie theaters yeah and just out of nowhere (laughs) would you be horny yeah i'd probably be pretty horn dogged up um uh i guess like It'd be like, remember in early film history, there's the train. All the people think the train is real. Like, <laughs> yeah, and they like, be like, who are these people? Like, oh my gosh, lock them up. <laughs> what are they doing? Um, it's, that would probably be me. <laughs> okay, word. Yeah. Like, it's also funny because I also, like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like during this time, I guess you can't necessarily equate, like, you know what's happening in film to like what would be happening like culturally but like I do so I'm like is were people just like not having sex that much like was there just not (laughs) freaky shit happening in 1898 like I don't I feel like there was hella freaky shit happening I like went to the vibrator museum one time there's like a vibrator museum in like San Francisco it's pretty small but they had like these vintage vibrators and I was like oh my god god like 1800s they were getting crazy yeah Um, they were scary they were scary looking sex devices yeah (laughs) 
That sounds like actually just like torture <laughs> devices. <Yeah. laughs> okay. Well, I guess with that very positive note. Um, also around this time, there was like other producers who started, specifically male producers who started to like kind of portray their female characters more, I guess, centrally. Um, there was Howard Hughes who was who had kind of gotten in trouble already for displaying a lot of cleavage in his films. And then also another producer, Russ Meyer, who like was known to cast women with large breasts and especially women who were in their first trimesters oh of like God. pregnancy because apparently that's like, <laughs> you know, when they're just extra voluptuous. So. Imagine the casting call for that. It's like, um... <laughs> Ladies in their first trimester, head to the front Ladies. of the line. <laughs> Please head oh, to the front you. of the line. <laughs> Which is funny because then you would, like, I would think now people are less likely to work with, like, or just aren't wanting to work with pregnant people. But it's like, yeah. they have larger boobs. So, like, why wouldn't you want to work <laughs> with them? Um, and then, like, kind of now around from, like, you know, 1900s to 1930s, um, we are starting to get a little bit more of like some sort of, you know, ground, like display of sex in film. Um, there were these things called like stag theaters where they started showing porn movies and kind of these underground theaters where moviegoers who are usually men would go and then like hide their identities they did not it was like a very like hush hush thing which is also really funny because I cannot still I can't imagine this like in the 20s like people pulling up in their like (laughs) like suit and tie and their little their hat (laughs) and just like sitting down in a theater with other men around them (laughs) they would just tug their hat down (laughs) tug their hat down (laughs) They'd, they'd be very cool transatlantic accents and, yeah. <laughs> i wonder if the porn <laughs> actors so i would assume would they also do transatlantic accents i feel like it was silent it was silent films still oh, i wonder if word. they had like um the like flashcards that were like flipping between. oh my god yeah <laughs> like your dick is huge cut to like <laughs> someone like, should make oh. that <laughs> It's got organ music in the background, like, like the cabinet like, of Dr. Caligari. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. So actually, it was an awesome time. <laughs> this is like peak sex in the film. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So there was these stag theaters kind of around World War One. There was also these producers who were making these like sex hygiene movies, which were basically just shown to the soldiers to like warn them about sleeping with women while they were deployed. And then those, like, people who worked in those movies ended up, you know, working in in the early 30s with things that would be called, like, sex pictures, which basically were just films containing, very, like, ambiguously containing Puritan elements and suggestive content. So they kind of, like, more suggest that sexual things are happening than, like, actually showing it. And then a a really big archetype that came up during this time was the idea of like a fallen woman or like even like a bad girl, which is just kind of the female characters who were profiting from their like promiscuous or immoral behavior. And then usually by the end of the movie are usually like redeemed or they're kind of like not and they like have a shitty, they either like die (laughs) or like lose all their money or something. Um, 
before it was bury your gays, it was like bury your sluts. Like they just would, <laughs> they would just kill off the woman by the end, or like put her in yeah. extreme poverty for for being a hoe. Um, it was like a morality play, I guess. Yeah. No, and I would not be. I would be. I would. I'd be an outcast if I was in the <laughs> if I was hoeing around in the thirties. But yeah, and also I don't know if the, how accurate this is, but there is like. Variety did do an article on this where they essentially blamed women for the increase in sex pictures because supposedly they were like most of the pa- uh, patrons going to these sex pictures were f- women. And the quote is just really funny. It, it <laughs> says like, uh, women are responsible for the ever increasing public taste and sensual- sensationalism and sexy stuff. Women who make up the bulk of picture audiences are also the majority reader of the tabloids, scandal sheets, flashy magazines, and erotic books, which like, okay, sounds like a fun time. Um, (laughs) Anyways, and then (laughs) the mind of the average man seems wholesome in comparison. Women love dirt. Nothing shocks them. Wow. Which I'm like, okay. (laughs) Okay, maybe there's like a little truth in that in terms of like, (laughs) yes, women are reading the fan fiction and producing the fan fiction, but like, Oh who yes. Gaffs. Who gaffs like we're having fun. Who gaffs? Literally we're having fun. Okay, so let's get into <laughs> uh, like kind of what the public's response to this was and then uh, kind of the public as a whole but even the the government was not happy with like <laughs> these portrayals of sex in film. Yeah, okay. So before we get fully into like right into the pre-haze like code era, there's one court decision that was pretty important. In 1914, there was a Mutual Film Corp of the Industrial Commission of Ohio. And this decision, the main thing to take away from it is that it declared that films did not like qualify as art. They were commerce, so the First Amendment didn't apply to them. So therefore, they could kind of be censored. So... What that does eventually is cause a whole cascade of censorship laws. But before then, we get to the Roaring Twenties. And like mm. like we said, there's a lot of fallen woman films and there's a lot of sexy things going on. People mm. want to have fun. There's a lot of money going through society and a rethinking of morals and tradition. And so during this time, movies are getting a little bit more racy. And at the same time, Hollywood's reputation like goes majorly downhill. I feel like a good, sorry, I just feel like a good good. movie that portrayed this um, was Babylon that came out recently. I feel like it showed kind of the beginning of when film was silent to now like talking films or talkies and then kind of the creation. I don't know, it's just interesting because then there's the creation of the star and but then also at that point, Hollywood is just like so full of drugs and sex. Well, not full (laughs) of, but there's just drugs and sex and you know, it is, it's a den of sin, but it's, it's a fun. literal den of sin. And the key, like three things that made Hollywood seem like a huge den of sin rather than like the city of stars that we know and dream of was um, number one, there was the death of Olive, Olive Thomas. She was a pretty wholesome girl. Also, by the way, by the way a lot of this info is coming from the You're Wrong About episode on the movie rating system. Uh, highly recommend it. We love Sarah Marshall, and yep. I think it has um, it has the host of You Must Remember This, so it's just an awesome collab. But 
back to the story. Um, one of the main reasons was this this actress, Olive Thomas, she was super prevalent in Hollywood, very popular, and she played this flapper character. Uh, so she was like a little bit risque, but overall pretty well respected. And she goes to Paris with her husband, boyfriend, they're kind of on the rocks, they're trying to save their marriage. And she dies. <laughs> she dies. Oh, no. um, yeah. She's staying with him. And in the dark, somehow, she accidentally uh, consumes his, like, topical medicine for his syphilis uh. rather than the pills that she was trying to take. So there's a lot of sketchiness around that. But that's the story that people go with. And so she dies. Um, and yeah, I don't know how you would mix up. <laughs> like pills for a topical <laughs> medication yeah like, yeah and it's dark yeah. too it's like what is going on like, like it's just because it's dark like turn on I'm those like where lights. did they get this turn on those lights <laughs> or like light up a candle i don't know what they <laughs> no where really. electricity is at that point yeah just so oh silly. duh they do have electricity <laughs> <laughs> No, literally. It was very preventable. It was a bummer. But unfortunately, yeah, bummer. like Hollywood's general response to this or just like society's response is just like they she's associated with Hollywood and these kind of risque roles and just the flappers like a loose woman. And a lot of people are like, well, it was inevitable that this happened because she's just wrapped up with all the wrong type of people. That one's not like so major, but things keep escalating because, you know, Hollywood is pretty... Uh, pretty full of drugs at this point. Uh, it's yeah, it's the Roaring Twenties, and everyone's having fun, specifically actors and actresses. So then, in 1921, there's a famous comedian from the silent film era um, named Roscoe Arbuckle, also known as Fatty Arbuckle. He has a Labor Day weekend party, as one does in yeah, San Francisco. Like He's partying it up, and then by the end of the party, the end of the night. It turns out that one of the party goers, Virginia Rapp, an up and coming actress, has died. And I think the official report is like maybe one of her like kidneys or like her pancreas burst, which just sounds like a really terrible way to go. But it sounds like it might have just been a result of like that all the alcohol she was consuming or like either just like a pre existing condition. But the rest of the media pretty much sensationalizes this. And Fatty Arbuckle is accused of sexually assaulting or, like, raping Virginia Rapp. Even though there's, like, no physical evidence around it, there's just a lot of fat phobia at the time around his size. And people begin to say that he crushed her to death with his body, which is, wow. like, by no accounts true, like, anywhere. There's no sign of this. But people are just taking a lie and running with it. So his re reputation kind of goes to absolute shit. He can't get any more jobs. The Catholics push for like Hollywood to just ban all of his past movies. And this is also bringing a lot of bad publicity into Hollywood. And then yeah. finally, in 1922, there's the murder, this mysterious murder, which is still unsolved, of William Desmond Taylor, uh, who's like a pro prolific actor and director and like almost confirmed bisexual. I think there's a lot of accounts. Of him, I like, frequenting, yeah, gay bars and the like. But you can imagine, uh, beyond just the fact that there's murder in Hollywood, uh, Catholics are like, and he was bisexual? Yeah, like, this is <laughs> this is getting a little crazy. <laughs> um, People are starting to be gay now. Well, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> doing so sex, drugs, gay people, murder. Hollywood oh. is just, it's just, it's yeah, it has to clean 
clean up its act. And all yeah. the producers and executives are starting to get worried that they're going to be regulated by the government because mm-hmm. of all this sin that's been going on. Yeah. And they're worried that they might get like permanently censored by the federal government if they don't like start regulating themselves. So they, they begin they they start to regulate themselves in various degrees of success. The first thing they do is Paramount Pictures. This is a pretty short solution. It does not pan out. They come up with 14 <laughs> rules where for the other studios where they cannot criticize Christianity. There can't be any belly dancing in movies, no, no prostitution, no nudity. Yep, all the fun parts of film just like mm-hmm. totally gone. You know, like belly dancing is it's which is so so interesting because I think one of the first films is a of a woman belly dancing. Wow, <laughs> mm. <laughs> they're literally taking away the core tenets of Hollywood. I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I think there's a belly dancing scene in Metropolis as well, um, which is not an American film, but I'm I'm just thinking about like early Hollywood. So I guess belly mm. dancing was a big part of movies. So yeah, um, yeah, they censored that. Paramount Pictures does not actually plan to follow these rules, which is funny. They're just going to be, like, distributing them and then doing their own thing at the same time. But word gets out that they're not planning to follow these rules, and so they they decide, like, the industry as a whole realizes that the studios can't regulate themselves. That would be a little silly. So they need a censorship board that they're going to hire, which (laughs) seems somehow, like, equally, like, corrupt, but they do it. And this is where William Hayes comes in. Mm. Um, so if you've heard of the Hayes Code, this is the guy. Although you might yeah. find out he's not actually the guy. He kind of fails a lot of times. So it's oh, it's amazing flops. that he yeah gets to be the title of this code because he did not he did not really create it. Um, no, he's just a big old virgin. <laughs> he's a big old virgin, and he's kind of just there, and he's kind of a slime ball. But yeah, they think that Will Hayes is going to be a really good fit for the position, kind of because he is a slime ball. But at this point, he's the former chair of the Republic- Republican National Committee, and he's Presbyterian. He seems like, at least um, on the surface, to be a good fit for the religious right, to, to fool them into believing that Hollywood is reforming. But unfortunately, people gradually lose faith in Hayes because, like we said, he's not, like, exactly a stand-up guy. First, he, in, like, 1924, there's an unrelated political thing going on called the Teapot Dome scandal. Um, And he testifies in court. He's kind of really shady about it when they ask him, like, why he didn't talk about something and, like, mention it before. They're like, he's just like, you never asked, which is just, like, very... (laughs) Very funny, very gangstery. Um, very gangster. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and it's revealed that he was like involved in the scandal and was like brokering the oil contract. So that's an issue. And then he angers the Catholics too because he lifts the ban on fatty Arbuckle movies because, like, yeah, movie theaters really want to show the, like the comedian stuff because he's a he's a really successful performer. And so Will Hayes is like, all right, pull my arm. And he shows him. And the Catholics are like, come on, dude. So literally, he's doing nothing right. So he hires a new guy to help him, Jason Joy. They create, in 1927, the Don't Be Careful list, which I think is just a really funny name. (laughs) Um, Don't uh, be careful. Yeah, it's just like very slap on the wrist, very like I don't I don't know what they're like trying to do. Wagging their finger in front of your face. Be careful. 
don't do it. That's a don't. <laughs> this is a be careful. No. <laughs> um, but the don'ts include sex perversions, like no gay people, no gender fluidity, no drug taking, and then oh, <laughs> the drug taking is not part of sex perversion, but uh, no drug taking, no prostitution, <laughs> uh, no miscegenation. So like like interracial sex or interracial relationships and then no criticisms of religion and that basically just means like don't fuck with christianity on screen and then the be carefuls are like you can't show surgical operations on screen which i don't know if they were doing that beforehand um sedition is also a no-no and then you got to be careful about lustful and excessive kissing yeah that is it's interesting with like like the history of censorship or when we're looking towards like what's being censored in media, it's always going to like encompass a little bit more than it says it's going to. So it's like saying like, Oh, we don't want to like have sex in, you know, film, but that also means we don't want to see interracial couples, which, you know, doesn't have anything to do about sex. It is like just racist. So it's like, it's, it's, I don't know. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm also not a fan. And I agree. It's like um, it's like a loophole almost that you can use this initial like foray into like censorship and just use it for like other political political needs, like um, also yeah. uplifting Christian values and at the yeah. same time, like warning people about, I guess, gay marriage and stuff like that. Oh. So just a big, a big Republican fest. Yeah. At this point in the don't send me careful list. But luckily, the list does nothing. People don't <laughs> give a single fuck about um, Will Hayes. He has no authority. And at the same time, Hollywood is reacting to the Depression due to the Wall Street crash in 1929. Uh, so films are jumping right back into sex. They're like, okay, we need to draw people in. So we're going to create the sexiest films we've had so far. One of the key people I love from this pre-code era is Mae West. She's this theater performer who ends up on film. She she made this um 1926 musical that's literally called Sex, and I got her thrown awesome. in jail. Um, <laughs> no, she's literally iconic. I love that's her. Awesome. Um, she was pro gay. Yay! She made a musical about gay men. I don't know what the musical was. I don't know if there's like mm. a lot of like traces of, of it, but she did support gay people, which is rad. Um, for the twenties, yeah. Yeah, and her trademark was kind of just being overtly sexual and dabbling in a lot of innuendo. And as you might expect, like Catholic reformers just fucking hate her. They're like, no, this is like the epitome of sin. But what the Great Depression does, unfortunately, is leave the film industry pretty vulnerable to attack. So at this point in 1933, the Legion of Decency, which is like the Catholic group activism group which is just such a funny name legion of decency is (laughs) game of thrones level Um, or like marvel (laughs) literally but yeah catholics are like threatening to boycott all the objectionable objectionable films that they don't like and then the industry can't really survive these boycotts because it's the depression so they have to comply with catholic needs So uh, Will Hayes, spineless man he is, he hires Joseph Breen, who's a major Catholic reformer. And Joseph Breen becomes the head of the PCA, which is the Production Code Administration. And he actually enforces censorship rules and helps the Production Code 
just actually like make an impact, a negative impact, but an impact nonetheless. Yeah. So the production code itself was created by uh, Will Hayes, Martin Quigley, and Father Daniel Lord, and not just Brian himself. He just came in a little bit after. Um, but these rules were kind of mainly the same as before. Don't show things that are going to incite people towards violence. So if someone commits a crime, they have to be punished by the end of the film, which you will see in a lot of like 40s and 50s movies. There's not a lot mm. of leeway around uh, gray morality. No sex perversion, which, as we said earlier, is, is understood to, to mean homosexuality. So you can have like references, references to queerness and like queer coded villains, which is actually pretty encouraged in the following 20 years. <laughs> um, but you can't actually say it out loud. Um, and then on top of that, no complete nudity. But who cares? Like, why were they even doing that? Okay. Um, miscegenation <laughs> once again. <laughs> and then no throwing shade on Christianity. So, Damn. yeah, those are the new rules. And they're actually being enforced because Joseph Breen is head of the PCA and he can grant seals of approval to certain films. And because of the structure of the Hollywood studio system at the time, like the movies will actually not be released if they don't get the seal of, of approval. They effectively won't get distributed, won't ever be shown. And the PCA refused every single part of the movie. So as a result, yeah. you kind of get a really heavily censored decade ahead of you. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. As far as like major studios and major production companies wouldn't want to show it, but like like Howard Hughes, when he wanted to show his his cleavage in The Outlaw, he had to go through like an independent theater. So there's ways, and with that, he even like got a lot of money through it. So, but there's just like a lot of risk to it that it just like ended up for a lot of major companies just like wasn't worth it to show these films. Yeah, there were definitely loopholes, but I think like I guess the main effect that this has on just the fact that all the studios have to follow these very strict laws is that. For entire an entire era of cinema, we really don't have any like queer representation or gay yeah. people or sex or like like interracial dynamics. And so that kind of just totally um, just censors a part of our history. And when, when we look back, we might think no gay people existed during like the 40s and 50s, but really they were just completely just written out of movies and not mm-hmm. allowed to be shown. So there were, yeah, there were people around um gay people (laughs) people of color they just weren't being shown on movies very um very directly so yeah Mm -hmm. um yeah and a really good at least me and Kristen have both talked about this movie in our respective film classes but um it's a film called baby face and it came out in 1933 and this is a very like very good instance of of this pre-code era and then and then moving towards a more things getting more regulated by the production code but basically babyface was about this female protagonist who moves to the big city with no money and her best friend chico um who which also at this time so her chico was a woman of color and at this time there was a lot of like a lot of supporting role roles with this like black best friend for at least this this year um of film and some people have even read their relationship in Babyface to be lesbian lovers, which I will just think of <laughs> to like, because it would just be more interesting. But anyway, so the the female protagonist and her and her friend, they leave the city and have she has this kind of rags to riches story, but only because she's sleeping her way to the top of this 
big company. So yeah, as you can imagine, it was not, it was not, it was kind of like breaking out of this fallen woman trope because the initial ending, there wasn't like necessarily a, like a lesson that she was being taught here. It was more about this like woman who was, you know, trying to kind of using her sexuality to, to profit. The original ending, it was more about like, she no longer cared about the material goods that she was being given through, you know, um, through her positions now. So it's it's basically a happy ending for her. She she grows spiritually, philosophically. She's with her <laughs> mans and she keeps all of her money, which is beautiful. But then <laughs> the fucking P, uh, uh, the fucking production code people came through and decided to revise it or just cut out that scene entirely, and they revised it to the main character, Lily, having to give up everything and go back to her hometown where her and her husband will work like a working class blue collar life. Um, and they don't keep the riches that were, you know, obtained in uh, an immoral way. Yeah, it's just a, a very depressing turn from like a feminist masterpiece to just this bland production code morality play once again. Um She's like portrayed as a gold digger Uh, in the original. I think there was also a really funny section where um, this wise older man who who she knows at home from her hometown um, is like quoting Nietzsche and gives her a book from him. And also (laughs) he's like, you have to exploit people and you like you have to do this to survive. And he has a lot of uh, good lessons. And then in the new in the new version, they they take out that book and they're also like at the end he's like you shouldn't have taken my advice like I was wrong, so the entire moral kind of switches around from this is some like a nuanced take on what a woman might have to do to survive and like how women's sexuality can be utilized because of this patriarchal world and it turns into don't do this because you'll be a slut and you'll have to be a working class woman forever, um, which is just. It's just whatever. It's just whatever. And we're, <clears throat> yeah, because they were definitely just worried that... Because they were worried that it would inspire other young women to do the same. Which, who wouldn't? <laughs> who fucking wouldn't? Um, yeah. But yeah, there was such a tension between, you know, the companies wanting to maintain good relationships with the production code because they didn't want to, like like, avoid causing even more intense regulation and even like start having things being federal uh regulated on the federal level but then they also wanted to make money which during this time was always like (laughs) depicting things that were had sex or violence in it which you kind of see just throughout this this whole period of of early you know sex films yeah and also this like deep need to make money and to to show sex and other shocking spectacles on screen eventually leads us into the 60s when some of these former power systems and the production code itself begins to crumble a little bit and we start moving into this exploitation movement um so yeah so unfortunately the Hayes code sticks around longer than you might expect it is uh, basically in effect from 1934 to 1968, although towards the end it really exerts a lot less power. But for the 30s and 40s and 50s, movies are being heavily censored and kind of like working their way through the studio system and just uh, being 
regulated at each step of the production process from creation, development, all the way to uh, being screened. So looking towards the end of the Hayes Code, we can kind of see that begin to weaken when the Hollywood studio system crumbles and regulation kind of goes with it. So around the late 1950s, there was a Supreme Court decision, uh, United States versus Paramount Pictures, which ended the practice of block booking. So block booking was where major studios would sell a slate of films, uh, regardless of their success, but like the movie theater would have to basically take all of them and show all of them. And some of them would be major blockbusters that everyone would want to see, and some of them would be B-movies that that the studio tossed together and just kind of get sent off. So the Supreme Court said that studios can't do that. And what that led to is that a lot of the major studios sold their theaters. So before that, uh, major major studios would create the films, they would have their own distributors, and they would have their own theaters. So the entire process was basically a monopoly under one studio. And that led to really huge studio systems thriving and all the like independent production companies just kind of flopping and not being able to, <laughs> to survive on their own because uh, everything's owned by like Paramount and the like. So after this, the studio system is coming apart a little bit and they realize that they cannot keep making as many movies as they've been doing because before then they're creating some mid movies, some really big movies, medium sized movies, just as many as they could produce per year. But now they know that they can't, sell them to theaters that will just take them. They have to be strategic about it. So they start making a lot less films. And so now the theaters are wondering what they're going to show all day. They need new material. And this kind of opens a space for new films, namely exploitation films. So a little background on exploitation films in general. They've kind of been a thing for a lot of Hollywood history, but what they are is basically... Uh, they're like these educational films that are exposing contemporary problems that are basically meant to just draw people in with really shocking segments that will violate the Hayes Code, um, but people will come see just because you can't see that content anywhere else. So it'll pose itself as like a, it'll have an educational intro that says, don't do this. And we're raising awareness about how evil strip teases are. And then it would show you a strip tease or a nudist camp or people taking drugs. <laughs> uh, so it's like, yeah, totally raising awareness, like nudge, nudge. Um, but yeah, those, <laughs> raising <laughs> those, my awareness. For a while. Yeah, no, literally like, uh, yeah, I, I went to like, six striptease awareness movies this past week. Yeah, uh, I know so much now. Um, but this exploitation movement kind of rises out of that. And the first thing that to come about are these things called nudie cuties, which is kind of funny. Uh, there are these kind of badly written comedies with a lot of female nudity from the waist up. It wouldn't have like any actual like sexual situations, but it would just be a lot of like bumbling men being like, Whoa, so many naked women. And yeah, um, it was a, a good front for, for having a narrative, a very loose narrative, and a lot of sexy women. Then there were also these docu-style nudist camps uh, movies. They tried to do the same thing as the previous exploitation movies where they were showing it as, this is a documentary about a nudist camp, uh, which would be interesting in itself. But what they did is they would hire like gorgeous models and like bring them to the actual nudist camps and just film them like frolicking. So it was like not an actual documentary. It was just like, here's a little bunch of like 
hot models being naked. And then finally, there were a bunch of like foreign art films that had a lot more nudity because you know how the French be or just like Europe in general. So a bunch of freaks, a bunch of freaks, literally thinking about raw. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there's this growing amount of like kind of sensual nudity growing and they're playing in these these new theaters that are springing up in the 1960s in 1969 the technical report of the commission on obscenity and pornography uh stated that roughly 600 drive-in and hardtop theaters including like different specialized chains as well that popped up during this time were playing sexploitation product and meanwhile yeah not even like the they didn't even, this didn't even document like all kind of like the random pop-ups. Uh, there was also mm. a lot of like rural drive-ins and urban theaters operating in the South as well. But uh, at this time it was pretty concentrated in California because of the film industry. There's also in 1967 kind of the introduction of Beaver Films. Hate that title, but it, it's basically just full frontal uh, female nudity where before it was only topless women. And a lot of these Beaver Films are in 16 millimeter films. Um, because college film students in LA are using borrowed equipment to like make this explicit content because they know <laughs> yeah they can make a lot of money and that's that's also why the porn industry kind of sprung up from California because there was already a growing film industry and a lot of sexual content was coming out of that yeah there's a lot of uh, like grindhouse theaters also popping up during this time to just show the beaver films and the 16 millimeter films there's these small storefront venues kind of like like early on in the film world in the early 1900s, uh, like the Nickelodeons where they would just install a screen and a bunch of chairs into like an old storefront. And so it was pretty easy to, to start one of these theaters and pretty easy to distribute uh, the Beaver film. So it's kind of just like a DIY porn movement. Uh, <laughs> there's no organized system for distribution. There's just kind of one guy who's peddling a bunch of it's porn. on the fringe. It literally is so fringe. And by 1970, 14 storefronts operating in San Francisco showed these types of films, and there were at least 100 in Los Angeles. Is um, is Beaver supposed to suggest, like, pubic hair? Like, what? Yeah, it's just, like, is... synonymous with, like, vagina. Mm, yeah. Beaver? Ugh. Right? Do not I call them even... that. I know. I hate it. I literally hate it. There was this funny... Let me see if I can find it. Oh, no, there was... Oh, I found it, I found it, I found it. Uh, there was this one theater in San Francisco called The Roxy. This is kind of a fun fact, um, mm. where they would just get really creative about the titles. Like, yes, I hate the word beaver, but they'd be like, beaver picnic. And then the next <laughs> one, I guess, would be like French women, and they'd be like, Boku beavers. And then the sailors, beavers at sea, beavers in bloom. And then there was one, I guess, that was like very 60s, 70s oriented. And it was like beaver protest. So it's like eager beavers demanding their rights. It's just like, oh my eager God. Eager so, so But yes, that was an era as well. And eventually we start to make our way into actual hardcore porn. And basically the only distinction there is that there's actual penetration uh, rather than before it was just um, simulated sex. But that kind of brings us to a greater, greater period of porn, which some may say is even the golden age of porn. Wow. <laughs> so, so sexploitation films, basically, as we've been talking about, they're independently produced. They're usually low budget feature films. 
And one of the first two that kind of kicked off this this golden age of porn, um, which refers to this kind of 15-year period in which that, like, very sexually explicit, basically, like, porn films were getting very positive attention from mainstream cinemas, movie critics, and then also just the general public. So suddenly everyone's horny, which is great. I feel like it must have been a great time for America at this point. Um, Don't quote me on that, because it definitely still wasn't. But um, so... (laughs) Uh, in 69, Andy Warhol came out with this, this film called Blue Movie. It was actually one of the first, it was the first adult erotic film to depict like explicit sex and to receive a wide theatrical release in the U.S. Um, another film that was important during this time was Deep Throat, which came out in 72, um, starting to kind of build on the momentum with Blue Movie and other, um, pictures that were coming out during that time. It's, Essentially about this woman, I think the actress's name was Linda Lovelace, who, you know, is having a lot of sex. It's great and all, and she's having fun, but she just hasn't had an orgasm yet. And so she's wondering why. Um, And she goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, it looks like, oh, it's so (laughs) unserious. It looks like, actually, that your clit is not, you know, where it usually is. It's not, like, at the top of your vulva. It's actually in your throat. So if you want to have, you know, amazing orgasms, and I suggest that you do a lot of, you know, blowjobs. And so she was like, (laughs) okay, like, I'll do it. And she has, you know, a whole period of just doing blowjobs. And that's why it's called Deep Throat, because it's like, I guess the clit is deep in her throat. I don't know. Um, That's actually, that's why men can't find the clit, because they're a bit confused. They're like, I thought it was, oh, okay, yeah, so... (laughs) So that's, that's why. They all think it's in the throat, but common misconception. But common misconception. <laughs> I know the, the really the wonders of a female body, of a femme body, of anything without a penis. <laughs> the castration anxiety just, they start to get a little delusional. But um, yeah, so we'll get more into that later because there's a lot of also like kind of interesting cultural things that are happening around this time. Um, particularly with Deep Throat, but then also about, you know, the depictions of sex in general. So there is a couple of really, like, prominent films that came out during this period. We have Boys in the Sand, which came out in 1971, and this was one of the first American gay gay pornographic films to include credits and to achieve, like, crossover success and also be reviewed by Variety, which is also interesting when I've been, like, kind of, like, looking through you know, the history of, like, these movies. Variety has always got something to say about it. (laughs) Always got shit to say. But I think the most important is Deep Throat. It was one of the highest grossing movies in 1972. It actually beat out, I think, The Godfather, which is, like, really (laughs) awesome. There was this article in the New York Times that came out that termed kind of this concept called porno chic, which, great, I love it. Um, and she was just kind of basically saying, like, it's kind of a social mandate at this point to go and see Deep Throat. Like, tickets were, like, literally, so they were, like, $5 during the time, which to now is, like, as if you would pay $32 to go see a movie. Like, that's, um, it's, it's a whole experience. Not so the it's AMC not- prices. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess they didn't have AMC stub list in the 70s yet. <laughs> yeah, so at this point, it's not just like kind of a specific, I guess, subculture of people or people on the fringe of society who are just like, 
you know, going to watch porn in theater. Now it's kind of like a wide, widely acclaimed film, which, you know, it's interesting because I, I, it's, it's good in a way that like society is just starting to like accept the depiction of, of like sex in like a way that's like very pervasive. Um, but then there's also like a lot of stuff going on kind of about sex in general, just even outside the media. This is where we kind of get into what is called the feminist porn wars or the feminist sex wars. Um, This was kind of a period of time around second wave feminism. So from like the early 60s to like, you know, when Deep Throat came out, that uh, basically that there was a sect of feminism that started to kind of align itself or started to collaborate with the right to get kind of like a focus, a natural focus on banning porn. There was like kind of a lot of of feminist work coming out, sorry, a lot of feminist work coming out at this time about like sexual violence and rape and Mm -hmm. um, just like having more of awareness around that, which is great. So there was a lot more awareness on that, but then there was kind of now this focus onto porn where it was like, and especially for its time and still now, like it is like depicting often a lot of like, sexual violence against women so this this sect of of you know of feminism at this time kind of just was like well porn is going to cause violence against women so we need to like basically legislate it so out of existence pretty much a little bit before this in like the sexual liberation movement this wasn't like this was kind of like pre-feminism in a way like there wasn't a feminist framework to like sexual liberation like there was a birth control pill this was like kind of this is when the birth control pill came out and so you know a lot more women um felt like they had a lot more agency over you know their sexual health uh but then they're also being (laughs) treated terribly by leftist men especially Mm -hmm. i think maybe the vietnam war protests were happening at this time or civil rights protests so there was a lot of leftist men you know in these spaces leftist men were starting to feel like kind of put this expectation onto women to have sex like at that point it was like oh well like to be liberated means you have to say yes to everything when you know obviously that's not the case so because of that uh, a lot of women started getting together into like conscious raising sessions where literally just like a group of like 20 women would like meet at someone's house I like love this like specific tidbit of like feminist history (laughs) I think it's like I would love this now like I think we really yeah. need conscious raising sessions now so as this was happening you know so women would would get together talk about a lot of taboo topics that were you know a lot were about sex um so like realizing that they were having bad sex kind of the pressures around that um sexual abuse like kind of what's happening in people's marriage even people's sexuality like a lot of women during this time came out as queer from that there's like became a very sex positive like sect of feminism that started to become like more of an opposition to the anti-porn movement as we're kind of getting more towards the 70s and getting more like kind of the proliferation of porn cinemas and when Deep Throat came out it was like a really big like it Deep Throat kind of became like a a vehicle for anti-porn feminists to kind of use as their argument for like why we shouldn't you know have porn or why we should like not have porn um or ban porn I guess is the right word for it I think it's Linda Lovelace um but that actress got like really abused on set by like not her not her like co-worker like not her someone the person that was like acting with her but by like 
Mm. um, a lot of the men on the production set. So and she came out with this book a little bit after that, this autobiography about it. And like, essentially said this, one of the things that she said that I felt like, at least very much stuck with me when I was reading about or learning about all this stuff was that she was like, anytime, you know, someone wants to deep, deep throw, they're actually like watching me being raped. So she had a very, like, very interesting story about kind of the cross section between sex and violence and even the the sex in film and violence. So a lot of the anti-porn feminists would kind of like parade her around almost and like very much not actually caring to like, you know, change mm-hmm. things in her life or to make her life easier, but just to have like some sort of pundit to be like, see, like we shouldn't have porn. But what the women who were coming out of into like the sex positive movement were kind of saying like, yes, like you're right. There's a lot of violence against women in porn but porn is not the cause of this violence is kind of, if anything, it's more a reflection of it. And the solution isn't to like ban it. Cause, cause now with the sexual liberation, there was like a lot of more sexual freedoms that like in sexual rights that started to be like, you know, more prominent in society. So they were like, we don't want to like roll back on things that we've already granted to us in society. So, so there's a lot of discourse between, you know, a lot of infighting and within the feminist movement, there was like a lot of the feminists who were sex more sex positive, like started to do like try to put together a conference to like talk more about these issues, which also at this point, I think it's important to note they kind of like retrospectively invited like women of color to start being a part of the conversation, which at this point was like, I don't know, like too late to not have them already be in the beginning of this conversation, especially when they're like experienced of like what sexual freedom is would be so different than like a white woman because there's like so many different connotations around like being someone who is seen as promiscuous. No, definitely. And also just like, I I know during this time, like the feminist movement was also pretty, pretty turfy, right? Like it's getting into that territory yeah. of like being pretty trans exclusionary sometimes yeah. even. Um, yeah. Like the, the queer, queer issues are also very much wrapped up in this. And I know. Yeah. I know there's a lot of issues or people are having issues with like gender dynamics with like butch lesbians and like femme mm. lesbians. And yeah. they're just saying that, yeah, it's like a reflection of like the same like patriarchal oppression to like yeah. top someone. So it's just like, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Simmering yeah. It, and that's, there's a lot of writings coming out too, but a lot of prominent feminists who started to say like, kind of denounce heterosexuality and being like, every time you have sex with a man is is basically rape which is like a really bad paraphrasing of the actual like I think it was Andrea Dorkin who wrote about Mm -hmm. it um which like raises a lot of questions like I feel like that's still very like an important like framework to have today with if you're someone who's having sex with men but it's still like I don't know. I guess for, for the feminists at that time, they were still like, I, I don't really want to be told what to do. Like, that doesn't seem like very liberating to me, even if I want to have sex with men. <laughs> so then a lot of a lot of kind of major figures in the anti-porn movement try to start passing kind of local ordinances, regulating or legislating the use of porn. Um, uh, they're trying to kind of pass amendments through like the civil rights law, basically just saying that like, it's 
discrimination against women or it's violence against women, but um, not, none of it is going through. Like at this point, like all the cases have been thrown out pretty much. And like the legitimacy of the movement is just becoming less and less as time goes on. Like it's becoming less legitimate and a lot of people aren't really taking them as seriously anymore. And also kind of the, I think a main issue was that a lot of things about like anti-porn legislation is also rolling back on a lot of um, free speech clauses, Um, which at this time, which is really interesting why they kind of collaborated with the right, which now is a really big um, proponent of like free, free speech. But I got at the time there was like a lot of, you know, with like the Vietnam War and then like, so, so with the Vietnam War, there was like, I felt, I think for the conservatives and for the right, um, they felt like there shouldn't be any sort of speech that was like kind of denouncing the war, denouncing like the U.S. like involvement in the war. So they were like a very like, uh, an unlikely pair, but it made sense for like kind of this, the, the um, things yeah. that were going on in society right now. Yeah. Fascinating how they flip flop and back and forth mm-hmm. across those issues. Um, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. This is still reminding me again of like the whole like, like trans inclusionary radical feminists. Like they also mm-hmm. nowadays, like in contemporary times with trans issues are like, once again, allying themselves with the right to like create these like, gender exclusionary um rules and just like create this like terrible legislation uh that we've been experiencing this past year yeah and it's just like yeah feminism white feminism can just be so like like who are you fighting like who started you on literally so so short-sighted and so so obviously like frail that like at the slightest slightest movement forward they they begin to ally themselves with with the like literal like right 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 so yeah Um, which is interesting to see how this conversation has evolved. So basically, like at this point, you know, the, the, the tension kind of starts to peter out. I'm, I'm assuming then we kind of like pass like, you know, abortion rights and, and things like that. So more sexual freedoms are being kind of unraveled and the anti-poor movement kind of fell, fell off until like, honestly, like an entirety, I think the, you're wrong about has a really awesome episode with this where she talks about Sir Marshall talks with um, Nina, Nona Willis Aronowitz, who is the daughter of Ellen Willis, who actually is the feminist who coined the term pro-sex feminism and was kind of a part of these, she was a part of these conscious raising movements. But um, anyway, so Nona was saying kind of now in the eighties, the kind of the feminist movement kind of just like falls off, like all of the effort being put, into the sex wars was just kind of now that was like the after effect of it was just that there was kind of no energy to do anything else but uh what's interesting it's interesting to see how this still has evolved because I feel like the big split in feminism now um or in a lot of it but in, in feminism now is like sex work and like whether and now there's kind of the you know swerves you know, there's TERFs who are like you know, trans exclusionary, but now mm-hmm. there's like sex work exclusionary feminists. A lot of the things are going to be like the patriarchy is like pervasive. It's going to be in anything. Um, but it's never, at least in my head, I never think it's like any individual woman or femme's fault for 
you know, trying to survive in a system that is like not made for them to survive. Um, And just like same with like the sexual liberation movement, like I don't think it's in feminist, the feminist movement's best interest to roll back any sort of sexual freedoms. Um, Mm. Yeah, I was reading um, this book, I think it's called like the feminist porn book. Yeah, the feminist porn book, The Politics of Producing Pleasure. And I really I really need to finish it. I read a few chapters just online in class randomly one day because I was bored. And then I was worried people were like looking over my shoulder and seeing that I was reading feminist porn book. Um, mm. But yeah, I was just trying to like sort through my own feelings about like about like the porn industry in general, because, you know, I have I have consumed porn before I have like mm-hmm. watched it and like. I, uh, it was interesting to hear about like how yes people like there have been attempts to make like ethical porn and like where where it's um you know made on like a, a safe set and it's like woman mm-hmm. directors and like consent is like very much like kept in mind but um at the same time just the entire industry has so many issues with it and the way that like we distribute porn without a lot of regulation mm-hmm. as in like comparison to like the film industry where you have to go through so many different um different checkpoints like with porn people can just upload stuff and and on top of that there's like a lot of obviously like rape and sexual assault on Mm -hmm. the internet because of this lack of regulation so it's it's like it's difficult to like sort through these issues i mean obviously it shouldn't be criminalized but at the same time like the industry is just so so fucked Um, no it's so saturated with misogyny and sexual violence against women yeah. and it's kind of a bummer that i don't know we might have lost our chance to like regulate it in some way when it, it like kind of branched off completely from the film industry um just like into home video which it, it wasn't before it was in these like movie theaters and i think there was definitely more of a process where people could could vet stuff and people could like like i don't know watch through it and choose like who gets to see it and like and all, yeah. all that type of stuff um and now that it's made its way to home video and like the rise of the internet and it's all this like very private secret thing it's just taken on a life on its of its own that we like can't control at all which is just it's a bummer yeah that's those are basically my thoughts i still don't know how to feel about only fans as well either um, <laughs> but i that's not our like that's not the job of this episode um it's no just, it, it's interesting where where it has ended up and yeah yeah (laughs) and just to I mean at the at the most or I guess at the least I am very pro-sex work um yeah so but um not pro you know the system that kind of makes that a lot of that profit possible but um yes again very complicated issue but I'm glad we got to talk about it kind of in the context of these movies um yeah, there yeah. might be like a later episode that we can like go further into that. There's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of good movies that talk a little bit more about sex work. Zola is a good one, and I know there's another another Tangerine. one. Pleasure recently, Tangerine. Oh, we might yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we might get further into this issue, but this is just very surface level stuff. Very surface level. So that kind of brings us into like what are a lot of like erotic films and what sex and film is now like in contemporary um, productions. 
uh, there's a lot more, I think there's just like a kind of a lot more variation in the kind of films that are being made. There's like erotic thrillers, like Eyes Wide Shut and Jennifer's Body. Um, there's like a lot of in horror films in the extent of which like if you have sex, you're definitely going to die. Also, I think an important thing to know, I don't know, actually, this would have been a good thing to know before, <laughs> but I don't. So now um, there's a whole nonprofit organization called Intimacy Directors International, and they provide intimacy coordinators to studios who can help, you know, work with actors as they are going to do like sex scenes and stuff. So they kind of help them like set rules and and like how like stimulated sex, nudity and intimate scenes is kind of going to work with them. They are usually like kind of directing that and kind of become like a an advocate for them between like them and, you know, the producers and the studios. Um, which I would love to be an intimacy coordinator. I think this is such an interesting job. Um, I think is important, but um, which kind of, you know, now it's like, so where are we going to go from here? What is the future of like sex and film? Cause I feel like the way it, the way it is right now is a very, like, I don't know. It's uh, there's two really like I recommend articles that I recommend, but also kind of what we're going to talk about here. So the the first article I wanted to talk about is this article by Raquel um, Bennett, I believe, or Benedict. The title is "Everyone Beautiful." Everyone is beautiful, and no one is horny. Um, and she's basically <laughs> talking about yeah, she's basically talking about kind of modern action and superhero how modern action and superhero films fetishize the body even as they desexualize it. So I feel like the way that sex is often filmed now and even within the like I would even say within the past decade it's a very like sterile way of viewing sex like she kind of mentions like now the way that we expect actors and their physical bodies to look um with plastic surgery and like kind of the rise of eating disorders and the use of steroids like we kind of get this very like idealized like superhero figure like I'm thinking Chris Evans as fucking Captain America. <laughs> like, very, very sexy, but we never actually see... And it's a really big thing in all the Marvel movies. Like, we kind of are just told through some sort of exposition that, like, you know, like, fucking... What's his name? The Hulk and, like, Black Widow are, like, having some sort of romantic relationship, but they, like, <laughs> never... They have zero sexual chemistry. And, Do you like, want to see them have sex, Bella? <laughs> <laughs> yes Kristen is that so bad is that so where's horrible? the six minute like porn scene come on come on that's what I'm wondering like all of Infinity War I was like I thought there was gonna be an orgy at the end of this like why is everyone fighting like why would they have so much of the cast here if not to have an orgy at the end like no literally literally it's because they didn't have Seth Rogen directing that shit he would have he would have known um and I think so I feel like it's become very like our physical bodies and, and a part of that being sex is being really intertwined with, with like commodities. Um, she makes kind of a point towards the end of the article about how our bodies are kind of no longer felt as this like holistic system. It's not, um, I'm going to kind of, you know, paraphrase this quote. Um, it's not like a vehicle through which we experience joy and pleasure. 
Um, it's not a home to live in and be happy. Um, it is actually just a collection of features, six pack, thigh gap, cum gutters. Awesome. Um, and these features exist not to make our lives more comfortable, but to increase the value of our assets. Mm -hmm. So like, even just like kind of sex and the body being stripped of, of the erotic just for the sake of it being, um, I don't know, I guess consumable. Um, yeah, there is, um, there's this also other article that I love, um, by Charlie Squire, um, who she has this blog on Substack called evil female. Um, and she kind of did like a built on, you know, um, Raquel's article and her title is, uh, everyone is grotesque and no one is horny. Um, and I don't know, she, she continues to kind of just like, she, kind of also starts to talk about kind of what the relationship of the audience is in all this um, and uh, how we have become so uncomfortable to seeing sex on camera. Yeah. So she starts to kind of introduce the, what the, the audience's relationship is to this dynamic of being shown um, like un like unironic, very confrontational matter of fact like sex scenes um and it, just even the watching sex on film were kind of become uncomfortable because now there is like the presence of the camera and we begin to realize that you know as a moviegoer as an audience that you are committing this act of voyeurism which I guess for a lot of people because it is kind of like a little bit of a taboo so um it, it reminds us that we are ultimately accessing someone else's narrative. Um, and that reminds us that we are the audience and that we are gazing at our subjects and which in turns remind us that we are also subjects who are gazed upon. So which to, to me, it's like suddenly then we're like, well, what is my sex look like from a very like aesthetics point of view or like what is authentic sex? What is realistic sex? What does it mean to be, you know, uh, I don't know, to see that portrayed in the movie versus like how it's going to be portrayed in real life. Um, yeah, the, mm -hmm. the article I was just talking about, um, uh, she kind of included a couple of these tweets of people just saying like, I wish we would just like go back to when there was like the cutaways, like where they would kiss and then you would just assume there was a sex thing there, which I'm just like not, I don't know. I can't rally behind that. I think there's a lot to be done with the power dynamics of, of sex and how that can be portrayed through film. And I feel like I'm excited to see where that can, what that can become when like more marginalized identities are being represented in those relationships and like are having way more active, um, I don't know, I guess, active presence in it. Yeah. And I sincerely hope, I guess, I don't, I can't predict the future of like sex on film, but it, it, at the moment it feels like we're regressing a little bit into like kind of puritanical vibes of just like cut it mm. out. It's not important to the plot. Like it's, yeah. if it's not important to the plot, you're just objectifying women for no reason. And at first I, I kind of, I understood where they were coming from, but at the same time, what I've come to like realize myself is that like sex is not really the plot of our lives. Like it's not part of the narrative of our lives. It's like these moments where we just get to like step aside from our lives and, and have pleasure. And I think cutting that out of movies is so sad because it is a 
part of like our Mm -hmm. existence and i think it's very like the best quality about it is that it suspends our narratives and we can yeah we can be lost in something for a moment on this hellish earth on Um, this hellish earth (laughs) so girl just trying to escape (laughs) me too i love i love to hear it i think too it's like it's not like a necessary function of our bodies. Like we don't need sex to survive, even, even though it sometimes feels that way to me. <laughs> um, but um, we don't need to have sex to survive. But that doesn't mean just because it's not a necessity doesn't mean it's not important to who we are as humans. Um, I think there can be a lot of healing to be done. Just in my own experience, there's a lot of healing to be done just through your own sexual journey. And I think like it could be done in such a subversive and awesome way through storytelling to a visual storytelling. Yeah. I think this is probably a good place to wrap up because it's probably gonna be a long ass episode, but Mm. um, just to recap what we've talked about today um, with the history of sex, we started from the earliest times of film in like the 1900s where we were just passing around stag films. We moved into the era of the code, the production code, and we lost a lot of our, our history and a lot of, of a lot of what we could have been portraying about sexual relationships and the true depths of like human relationships because of the censorship for around 20, 30 years. And then we had the sexploitation movement. We had the development of the modern porn industry. And now we're looking towards the future and hoping for the best. So yeah. yeah, do you want to? Should we end this on a question? I guess I just never have any questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm thinking I have all the questions. Like, what's yeah. your either? What's your favorite sex scene? What's <laughs> yeah. your favorite sex scene movie? What's your ideal okay. sex scene? Yeah, if oh, you were gonna direct one, one. <laughs> my favorite sex scene, I think that I've seen. One of them would probably be the one in Beef because it's just, like, it's very centered around, like, female pleasure. Mm. And it's just hot, period, (laughs) which Mm. is nice. And then number two, I really do like the sex scenes in Doom Generation. Um, And even, like, the non-sex scenes where it's, like, their eye fucking each other, like, the two guys. (laughs) Like, that's basically a sex scene. So, like, the the intimate moments in that that thruple towards the... I guess towards the beginning not the end of the film it gets the end of the film is not yeah but um but that's not the point of the end of the film but yeah I think that movie does a good job of showing how hot <laughs> things can be and yeah <laughs> how about you Bella um the one that comes to mind that I feel like is just a classic is the the Mrs. and Mr. Smith sex scene where they literally just like have sex and destroy the whole house do you do you know what I'm talking about? Have you watched that? I think maybe. Maybe I I watched it like a while back, like when I was 12. yeah. Well, just Brad Pitt and Angelina Angelina Jolie in their prime. Like I I will see that it's any so day. Hot. They are yeah. so hot. Even if it's an unattainable ideal, I will still enjoy it. But yeah, I do. I mean, I agree that like Doom Generation is definitely like one of the sec like actually sexiest film that I've seen in a long time. I feel like other than that, I don't know. I feel like Bridgerton kind of did, like, kind of was able to put, you know, a lot more, like, anticipation and fun back into it. Not, like, I want to see way more of that, but I also enjoyed that. 
I only watched one episode of Bridgerton and I remember being like, why are they having sex? I was like, what is going on? This is not what I was anticipating from this show. Um, especially just because awesome. they're like all British. I'm like, British people bang? Uh, no. No. <laughs> they don't. No, they don't. They shouldn't. But yeah, we should talk about our least favorite sex scenes in the future. I think that'd be oh, fun. Oh yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Not including like, sexual violence because that doesn't count but just like very badly filmed sex scenes i think that would be i agree yeah okay well i guess that's everything we have for today we hope you enjoyed this history this crazy winding road and yeah have a lovely day thank you for listening Bye. bye so what are you here for